welcome to the Southcliff Podcast. We're glad you've joined us. Now, here's Senior Pastor Dr. Carol Marr with this week's sermon. Well, it's good to be with you today. We continue a study that we started at the beginning of the year called Victory Our New Normal. And what we have discovered is that God longs for us to walk in victory. He wants us to experience life at its best. I love it when Jesus says, I've come that you might have life and have it abundantly, that you could have abundant life, full, meaningful life. And we've been on a journey to discover how can we embrace that? If God wants me to have it and I don't have it, how can I get it? And we have looked at the book of Joshua and we have been walking together with the nation of Israel as God leads them into the promised land. Now that is a picture for us as God leads them into the fullness of all that he has for them. Everything God does as he instructs them, and we have seen that he gives specific instructions all along the way. And everything God does, he does for a reason. But I believe that one of the reasons is that it provides for us a, a pattern that we can follow to understand how we too can walk into the fullness of all God has for us. So if you have your Bible, turn with me, if you will, to chapter 7 in our study. Now we come to a very critical place in the story. The nation of Israel in, the, in chapter 6 has just um, experienced a major victory. God had enabled them to overcome the city of Jericho. Jericho, one of the oldest and most ancient cities in all the world, was a fortified city with walls 30 feet tall, two different sets of walls, an outer perimeter that was 12 foot tall. It was almost impenetrable. It was, a, it was a city that you could not take, and the nation of Israel faced it as their first challenge in the land of promise. We've discovered that even when God leads us into victory, it doesn't mean that there's not battles that we have to fight. But he does teach us in this particular battle that he fights for us. And he gives us the strength to encounter and overcome the challenges that we face in life. And so we watch the nation of Israel as God leads them in very specific directions to bring about the, um, the victory of Jericho. And you remember, God tells them, you're to walk around the city of Jericho one time every day for six days. The priests are to go before you, blowing the trumpets. The Ark of the Covenant, representing the presence of God, comes next. And you're to walk around the city one time every day for six days. And then on the seventh day, you walk around the city seven times, and at that last walk around the city, there's the shout of the trumpet and all the people shouts and the walls of Jericho fall flat. And the people rush in and they defeat the enemy at Jericho. Now, when we come to chapter seven though, something's different. Every chapter in the book of Joshua begins with either the word now or then. And it tells the story of the narrative of God leading to victory. Now, this happens. Or then, 
this happens. But when we come to chapter 7, there's a change. There's an interruption in the story of victory. And, and the chapter begins with the word, but. But. Something's interrupted the pattern of victory. Something has happened that has stolen away this victory from the people of God. Something happened that interrupts all that God has for his people. And in this chapter, we really discover the danger of sin in our lives. Now, the first verse of chapter 7 introduces us to a man by the name of Achan who sinned and disobeyed God. Now, we don't know exactly what happened, but it might have been something like this. The night after the great victory, everyone was excited, but also exhausted. God had delivered this unbeatable foe into their hands, destroyed the walls. They watched as the miracle of the walls fell flat and they took this city that no one could take. They returned to their camp and, and exhausted, but yet victorious, they go to sleep all but one, Achan. He's just kind of pacing the floor in his tent. Long about midnight, he raises the flap of his tent and looks out to see that no one is stirring and he steps out. The moon's bright, he doesn't need a torch. In fact, it's so bright that it casts shadows and he is careful to make sure that as he makes his way through the camp of the nation of Israel, that he stays in those shadows so that no one sees and he's undetected. He finally makes his way to the walls of Jericho that lay flat after God had destroyed. He makes his way through the rubble into the city and finally into some of the streets within the city. Probably as the moon lights the way, he continues to walk until he comes maybe to the area where the market used to be. And as he quietly walks through, something catches his attention. Kind of glistens in the light of the moon and he goes over to pay attention to it and, and it's a small object and he picks it up and it is in, amazingly heavy for its size. And it shines in the moonlight. He knows immediately this is, this is gold. He had never seen gold before, never held it. And there was something about just holding that gold that made his heart beat a little faster. He quickly took that and placed it into his pocket and continued to walk until he noticed among the rubble there was a, 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 maybe a leather bag laying there. He reaches down to pick it up and hears a jingle, opens the flap, and inside this leather pouch that had been discarded in the chaos of the defeat of the city of Jericho, there were silver coins. 
puts his hand in and raises them to the moonlight and sees and is amazed. He quickly takes the strap of that bag and puts it over his shoulder and turns to go. And as he does, maybe he puts his hand on a makeshift table and feels something different than any thing he's ever felt before. It's fabric, but not like the old wool fabric that he is used to. This is different. He picks it up and he can tell, even though he can't see that clearly in, in, in the light of the moon, that this fabric's different than anything else he has ever seen. And, and, and it, it's exquisite. It feels soft and yet amazing. He can tell that it has beautiful color in it. And he quickly takes that piece of fabric and drapes it over his head and makes his way back to his tent. Well, he gets back to his tent, careful to go unnoticed, and rolls his bed mat up, digs a hole, takes that beautiful garment, puts the gold bar in it along with a bag of silver coins and rolls it up and puts it into the hole under his bed roll and smooths it over, rolls his bed roll and then lays down. I did it. I did it. I got away with it. I did what you're not supposed to do where we were not supposed to do, but I did it and no one knows and no one will ever find out. Except God knew. He always does. And he's watching. God saw in that moment his disobedience. God saw in that moment his disregard for the commands of God. Because in chapter 6, that records for us the story of the destruction of the city of Jericho, there were some specific instructions that God gave before that final walk around when he said, listen, when the walls fall and you enter the city to kill the enemy, take nothing from the city. Do not take gold, do not take silver, do not take brass. All of that belongs to God. It is under a ban. You are to take nothing. You didn't win this battle. I won this battle. I want you to know that. And so you take nothing. Achan knew he was to take nothing. But he did it anyway. And in doing so, we find the chapter of seven and the encounter that happens teaching us the deadly danger of sin. Look with me, if you will, at chapter seven. And right after this occurs in verse two, because in verse one, it introduces us to Achan and the fact that he was unfaithful. But in verse two, we find these words. Now Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon, east of Bethel. And he said to them, go up and spy out the land. So the men went up and spied out Ai. After they had defeated Jericho, there are other cities that they need to defeat in order to take possession of the land that God has. 
And so on the heels of this amazing victory, he sends spies to say, let's go look at the next city that we have to take. They returned to Joshua, verse 3, and said, do not tell all the people to go up. Only about two or 3,000 men need to go up to Ai. Do not make all the people toil up there, for they are few. So about 3,000 men from the people went up there, but they fled from the men of Ai. And the men of Ai struck down 36 of them and pursued them from the gate as far as Shebarim and struck them down on the descent so that the hearts of the people melted and became as water. They sent 3,000 men and this small city descends upon them and the soldiers of Israel run like a dog with their tail tucked between their legs. And they wonder, whoa, wait a minute, what's going on? We just got through seeing God defeat the undefeatable in Jericho. What in the world is happening? So look at what happens next. Then Joshua tore his clothes and he fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening, both he and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why did you even bring this people out of Jordan, only to deliver us in the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? If only we had been willing to dwell beyond Jordan, O Lord. What can I say since Israel has turned their back before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it, and they will surround us and cut us off our name, cut us, uh, cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? So the Lord says to Joshua, rise up. Why is it that you have fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. And they have also transgressed my covenant, which I commanded them. And they have even taken some of the things under ban and have stolen and deceived. Moreover, they have also put them among their own things. Therefore, the sons of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies, for they have become accursed. And I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy the things under the ban from your midst, rise up, consecrate the people and say, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. Thus the Lord, the God of Israel said, there are things under the band in your midst. O Israel, you cannot stand before your enemies until you have removed these things under the band from your midst. God prescribes how they are to discover it is Achan. They discover that it is Achan and then pick up in verse 19. Then Joshua says to Achan, my son, I implore you, give glory to God, the God of Israel, and give praise to him and tell me what you have done. Do not hide it from me. So Achan answered Joshua and said, truly, I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. And this is what I did. When I saw among the spoils a beautiful mantle from Shinar, and 200 shekels of silver and a gold bar, 50 shekels in weight. I coveted them, took them. Behold, they are concealed in the earth within my tent and the silver underneath it. 
So Joshua sent messengers and they ran to the tent and behold, it was concealed in his tent and the silver underneath it. And they took them from inside the tent, brought them to Joshua, to all the sons of Israel, and they poured them out before the Lord. And Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, the silver, the mantle, the bar of gold, his sons, his daughters, his oxen, his donkeys, his sheep, his tent, all that belonged to him, and they brought him up to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, why have you troubled us? The Lord will trouble you this day. And all Israel stoned them with stones, and they burned them with fire after they had stoned them with stones. And they raised over him a great heap of stones that stands to this day. And the Lord turned from the fierceness of his anger. Therefore, the name of the place has been called the Valley of Achor to this day. Now, that's an interesting story. Right in the middle of a book of victory, there is defeat. Right on the heels of the greatest victory of all times, there is defeat. And I believe that the story offers some lessons for us today. It allows us to recognize the danger of sin. And, and, and I think that's an important lesson for us because we live in a world today that has somehow trivialized sin and disobedience toward God. So three things that I think the text suggests to us that we can look at in our time together today. First, I, I want you to notice with me very quickly the, the, the power of sin. Sin's powerful. And in fact, what we see here as in other places in the Bible, we discover why God hates sin. Why does God tell us not to sin? I mean, we have all kinds of ideas about that. Some people believe that, that maybe God tells us not to do that because God is, you know, he's kind of a killjoy sitting in heaven with a long white beard and doesn't want us to have any fun. He doesn't want us to enjoy life, and, and, and sin looks like fun and, and excitement and, and, and real life, and, and somehow God wants us to live this boring life like a, a, a monk shut up, and, and all we do is study the Bible, and we just kind of live. But, but I want you to understand the story before it teaches us why God hates sin. And the reason God hates sin is not because he doesn't want you to have fun. It's because he doesn't want you destroyed. And he knows that sin has the power to defeat us. Sin has the power to rob us of the victory that God has given. See, God had already told the nation of Israel when they walk into the promised land, everywhere you step is yours, Joshua. All of the cities that you come against, I have already defeated them. You do not fight toward a position of victory. You fight from a position of victory. You've already won. All you have to do is walk in obedience, do what I tell you to do, and you will experience my victory. But the moment you disobey me, you open the door for defeat to enter into your life, and sin will rob you and will steal from you everything I have for you. Sin will steal our joy and suddenly our life becomes hard and difficult. It robs us of strength. And suddenly we become slaves to our own strength and discover that we're not strong enough to live against the whelms of life. 
But sin separates us from God in his strength and his power and his grace and his joy. And he simply says, I hate it because of what it does to you. Sin brought about the destruction in a moment when they did not have to be destroyed. 36 people died that didn't have to die. Achan, you and your family died and you didn't have to die. Sin always brings consequences and it creates defeat. It has the power to defeat us. But also in the text, I think God hates sin because sin separates us from God. In the text before us, we see an example that sin makes it where God is unable or unwilling to hear our prayers. In fact, the book of Psalm 66, chapter 66, verse 18 says, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. If I have sin in my heart, God won't hear. Now that doesn't mean that if I'm a sinner, God won't hear. All of us are sinners and, and God hears our prayer. When he says, if I regard iniquity in my heart, what are you saying is if I harbor sin in my heart, if I am living in willful disobedience to God, I know this is not what God wants, but I'm gonna do it my way and I'm gonna do it anyway. And I don't really care what God says about that with an attitude of harboring sin within my own life, an unconfessed sin, an unwillingness to give it up, a, a, a desire to hold on to it. The end result is that God won't hear my prayer. And don't we see that in the passage before us? What happens when they are defeated? Joshua does the first thing that he knows to do, he falls on his face and begins to pray. And he prays all day long. And he prays with power and with intensity and with every word and, and, and every way he knows how to pray. He comes before God because of the defeat that is in their life and it doesn't make any sense and I don't understand. And he cries out to God as we do so many times, God, where are you and why have you allowed this to happen and what's going on? And, and even as he cries out, finally God comes over to him and says, get up. Stop rolling around in the dirt putting... It, it, Listen, there's a time to pray and a time to proceed and there's a time to repent. And it's time to repent. I'm not listening to you because there's sin in the camp, Joshua. You got to deal with that. Sin separates us from God. And God loves you. And he wants to have a relationship with you. But yet sin separates, puts a wedge between us and God. And he hates it because it separates us from his love and his grace and his joy and his strength and his mercy and all of the things that make us victorious in life. In fact, Isaiah chapter 59 says it this way, behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that I cannot save, nor is my ear heavy that I cannot hear, but your iniquity has separated you from God and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear you. Joshua, you can pray all day long today and tomorrow too, but until you deal with the thing that separates me from you, that, that prayer's not gonna be heard. You see, the reason sometimes many of us never experience victory is because we are harboring sin in our life. There's something in our life we know God's not pleased with. 
We know God says don't do that. And we have chosen to do it anyway. We have rebelled and shake our fist in the face of God to say, I'm going to do that anyway. It doesn't make any sense that you would tell me not to do that. I'm going to allow that to be a part of my life. And you know what happens when that happens? We're separated from God. And as we move away from God, he no longer hears our prayer and we no longer have his power. And we begin a downward spiral of defeat and discouragement and and then this begins to happen you know it's really funny here's a side note the funny thing about the prayer that joshua prays is that joshua blames god for the defeat of the nation of israel did you pick up on that they go to ai and they are defeated at ai and and joshua says god Why did you bring us here? Why did you bring us here just to kill us? We should have been content to stay on the other side of Jericho. He has already forgot what happened at Jericho. He's already forgotten that God parted the waters of the Jordan. And now, because life doesn't make sense, and because I'm facing a problem or a challenge that I don't understand and that is defeating me, I get mad at God. Sound familiar? We do the same thing, don't we? Why would a loving, gracious, good God let me suffer like this? Why would God allow me to go through those things? And it's God's fault. And I begin to blame God for everything. And that's exactly what happens in the story before us. Joshua begins to blame God. I'm in trouble, I have a problem, I have experienced disappointment, and it's your fault. And God says, time out, Joshua. I'm not to blame here. I want what's best for you. What I want for you is joy and victory and peace I want you to live a victorious life, and if it's not there, it might be that there is sin in your life that is separating you from me. Joshua, stop blaming me and look around. There's sin that has to be dealt with. It separates us, and the only way we can fix this is to get rid of that. You can't just let that stay. You can't justify it. You can't make it okay. You can't make it right. You got to deal with it. And you can't hide it. And just because nobody else in the world knows it doesn't mean that I don't know it. And because I know it and it impacts our relationship, you've got to deal with it. Now, another reason very quickly that God hates sin think he hates sin because it separates us from him. It robs us of the victory that he has for us. And, and I think the, the, the third reason it is it hurts us. And you know what? It doesn't just hurt you. It hurts people you love. Do you realize that Aiken's entire family paid for his sin? And you know what? There have been times in my life when I've made decisions that were not what God would want me to do. 
I didn't pray about it. I didn't consider. I thought I had it on my own. I've got it figured out. And I just walk into a decision. There have been times in my life I've made decisions. And not only did I pay for it, my Tanya paid for it too. I've made some dumb financial decisions in my life. I didn't pray about it, didn't seek God's counsel. It just looked good to me. And I paid a price. And not only did I pay a price, she, she did too. And there have been times in my life when, when I didn't lead my family as I should. And you know what? My family pays a price for my sin. They suffer and they hurt. I want you to understand something. You cannot disobey God and it not impact anybody else. It always impacts others. And that's why God hates it. Your decisions impact the lives of other people. And God says, I want you to walk in obedience. I want you to do what I tell you to do. I want you to walk in victory. Because if you're walking in victory, guess what? That also impacts others. And the victory that I bring to your life... They get to experience that as well. And the peace and the joy that I make available to you can become a blessing to them. And God hates sin because it brings defeat to a life that he is calling to victory because it separates us from him and he loves us and because it hurts us and it hurts others. You know, as a parent, there are times when I, I tell my children when they were young not to do things. And sometimes I tell them not to do things because I know that if they do it, it's going to hurt them, right? And they did it anyway. <laughs> and you know, it breaks my heart, even though I told them not to do it, because I just didn't want them to experience the pain. But then the final thing that I think we can learn from the story is, is this. Or the second thing. Goodness, we're, we, we got to go. The second thing is that in the story we see the process of sin. We don't have to camp out here long. It's so obvious. When, when they identify Achan and Joshua says to him in, in chapter 7, um, when he says to him in there in, in verse uh, uh, 19, Achan, tell me, don't lie. You tell me what happened. Achan kind of spells out a pattern or a process of sin. He says this, I saw, I coveted, I took, and I hid. <laughs> Boy, there are four steps down a path of destruction. I saw I know God said not to, but I looked anyway. And, and as I begin to look at it, I wonder why God said, don't do that. I begin to question God because it doesn't look bad. In fact, it's beautiful. It's just, it's laying there in the dirt, okay? It's going to be covered up. No one will ever use it. There, you know, yeah, I understand that everything in here belongs to God, but this was overlooked and never made it into the treasury and probably never will. So what will it hurt? I saw and I began to 
question and, and I begin to question God and his rules and his laws. And, and then I, I begin to want that. And the desire for that creates an argument for that. Have you ever noticed that desire creates arguments? Suddenly we get new car fever. We don't need a new car, but we want one. And if I want one, I can find all kinds of reasons why I need one. I, I, and all of this, I don't really need it. The car of God's fine. It runs good and everything's good. But, but if I want one, I can begin. And all of a sudden, the desires rise up against the teachings of God. And we begin to, to fight with ourselves. And, and we come to the point where we just said, you know what? It, it, it's not going to hurt. Nobody's ever going to know anyway. And he took. And then he does what we often do next. He hid. To hide means that he justified it. I, I, you know what? I deserve that. I have a right. I, I deserve that. You know what? My wife has never been sensitive to me. My husband has never been sensitive to me. And so, you know, I deserve to have happiness and, and, and contentment in, in, in my life. And I know that, that, that having an affair is wrong. But you know what? I, I deserve that. I know that taking that is going to cause, but I deserve that. We begin to justify. There's a process. In, in, in the book of, of 1 John, it talks about the lust of the eyes and, and the lust of flesh and the pride of life. And it paints a picture of Satan when he tempts us. He's like a fisherman. Fishermen always select the right bait. If I'm going for catfish, it's a different bait than I'm going for bass and I'm going to pay. And you know what? Satan knows you well enough to know what bait to use. There are certain things that we are drawn to. And, and so he dangles the bait in front of us and he says, look, look, it's so good. It looks good and it's healthy and it's good for you. And the longer we look at it, the more we want it, and the more we want it, the more we justify why we need it. And the more we begin to say, God doesn't know what he's doing when he tells me I shouldn't have that and I should have that. And we take the bait and we're hooked and cooked. But here's the good news. There's a process of sin. And anywhere along the way, we can bail out. Paul says it this way. I've, I've discovered that, that with every temptation, God provides a way out. If Achan, when he was pacing the floor of his tent before he ever left, would have said, God, Everything in me wants to go, and I know you're telling me not to. If he would have said, God, uh, help me. Give me strength. I think at that moment he would have won the battle. I think he might have even been able to win the battle when he got there. It had been harder, but I think he could have won the battle to say, what am I doing? Why am I here? There are some of you that are here today. And you know what? This is a wake-up call for you. And this is what I want to say. What are you doing? How did you get where you are? Look at your life. Look what's going on. And you need to recognize that you're at a place now. You can turn around. You can come back. It's not too late. Now, the final thing that we notice is this. Not just the power of sin and the process of sin. But we also are able to recognize the price of sin. 
You know, the Bible says the wages of sin is death. And it sure was for Achan and his family. It was for 36 guys that paid the price for the sin that Achan committed. He paid a steep price. And you know what we discover? The things we fight so hard for that God tells us not to hold on to. You, you know what I've discovered so many times? There are people that hang on and fight and fight and fight all the way to their dying day. They fight to hang on to the one thing God said let go of. And when you get to your deathbed, you're going to open your hand and discover the thing you've held on to all your life is just sand. And this is calling us to evaluate our life. Consecrate yourself, Joshua said tomorrow. Get the sin out of your life. You're never going to be able to be victorious until it's gone, guys. Get rid of it. For those of you that are believers today, what God is saying is there may be areas in your life where you are willfully disobedient and you may have been there for a long, long time. Over time, you have walked away from God and you have become calloused and cold and indifferent. You wonder where God is. You're blaming God for everything that happens to you. And the real problem is... God didn't leave you. You walked away. And today is your opportunity to say, God, it's me. Back in the day when I was growing up, we played basketball, the Final Four going on. I don't think they do it anymore. But when I was in high school and we were playing basketball, when a foul was called on you, you raised your hand. Foul on number four, and number four would raise his hand. It's me. And I think what God is saying to you today is, hey, foul, you're right. Yes. And I confess it and I turn from it. And I want to say this to you if you're not a believer today. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. Spiritually, you are separated from God. But the whole story of the Bible and the story of the victory that we see even in the book of Joshua is the story of a God that loves you and a God that will restore you and forgive you. A God that is saying, come to me. Come to me. No matter what you've done, no matter how you've lived, no matter how horrible you think it is, no matter the fact that you can't forgive yourself, I will forgive you and I will restore you to right fellowship. God loved you so much that he had to take care of your sin. Sin separates us from God. So what did God do? He said, you know what? You can't fix your sin problem. So I'm going to fix it for you. And God became man in the person of Jesus. Jesus came to earth and he died on the cross. And the reason he died is because of the wages of sin is death. He died to pay your sin debt. And today you can receive the gift of eternal life as you just simply say, I'm a sinner. God, forgive me. Restore me to right fellowship with you. I believe, Jesus, you came and lived and died and rose again. And I'm asking you to... Here, take my life. I, I want you to be my Savior and Lord. And if you're a believer, to simply say, God, I want to start over again. I want to start over. So that we want to get to chapter 8, where we can find forgiveness and a new beginning.
Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the message you've given us today. This story illustrates so many truths that all of us are walking through. There are some that are in this room today and some that are listening that are struggling with sin and and we've just embraced it and we've allowed it to remain in our life and we've somehow made all kinds of adaptations as to why it's okay and bottom line is it's destroyed us. We don't know the peace that you give, the joy that you make available, the power. We just kind of exist. So God, we need you to give us the strength even now to turn from the sin. Would you, Holy Spirit, put your finger on that area of sin in our life and say, that's it, that's, that's it, so that we can confess it to you as sin and ask you to forgive us, restore us. For those that are here that have never accepted Jesus as their Savior, their sin separates them from God. But you love them so much, God, you made it possible that they could have a relationship with you through through faith in Jesus. And so today I pray that you would make it clear to them, Holy Spirit, so they see that they are a sinner needing you and they would turn to find your grace sufficient in this moment. And for that, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Everyone at Southcliff Church, thank you for joining us today. If you would like more information about Southcliff Church, please go to southcliff.com to share a testimony of how God has encouraged you through this ministry. Send an email to scpodcast at southcliff.com. That's scpodcast at southcliff.com. Click the gift button on our webpage to discover how this ministry is supported. Financial gifts help accomplish the mission God has given us.